Are you a home educator starting Latin and feeling overwhelmed? Are you a Latin teacher looking for new inspiration and ideas? Or are you a casual learner beginning your journey into ancient languages? If so, this podcast is for you. In each episode, language teachers and experts come together to share their knowledge and experience with you in an accessible, fun, and inspirational format. We'll break it all down for you, from teaching tips, to choosing a curriculum, to staying motivated and keeping it fun. We hope this podcast helps you become the best undead language learner you can be, wherever you are on your journey. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Demystifying Latin and Greek, Undead Languages for Living Brains. I am Dr. Kirsten Bequa. And I am PhD candidate, Annie Phillips. Not quite doctor. I'm glorious when I can say doctor. Yes, well, we'll have a celebratory episode moment. I don't know. That'll be great. Well, we need like a, I don't know, somewhere to put that, like a podcast. Yeah, we'll have some like special sound effect in the background or something. Oh my goodness. Uh, I won't be able to be there. Uh, Too far away, California. Well, it's fun. It's really fun. I actually, speaking of which, since we're beginning with some random life updates my dissertation finally arrived oh excellent the the copies that i ordered finally showed up how like how many months later uh four months later four months later the books finally arrived i was actually about to call them and say hey you know i did pay for these (laughs) these books that i wrote where are they so they finally came oh nice well good to know when when my time comes (laughs) Just wait four months. Be patient. It will happen. Yeah, fair enough. But yes. So we are, and what about you? Anything new on your end? Not really. Just still enjoying it. Just, yeah, working on the dissertation and teaching the Latin. And yeah. I've been been reading some Catullus poems, pondering and selecting for students to enjoy. Yeah, I've been reading in my copious spare time. Just a little bit of sarcasm there, but uh, Boethius's Consolation of Philosophy in Latin, which has been highly recommended if you can, because it alternates between there are these really lovely poetical sections, and then there are much more intense and difficult prose sections that can take a while to get through. Uh, because the syntax is complicated, but it is it is a really, really fun work to read in the original. So that's what I've been doing in my, that's my hobby right now. Speaking of complicated prose, today our topic du jour, de jour, I forget, I don't know French, is translation. Well, we both, uh, Annie and I both as a product of our graduate school experience, actually incidentally learned to read French together. I don't speak it, but I read it. It was an adventure that we embarked upon shortly before Annie's eldest child was born. Uh, Yes, that's true. And she abandoned me at the end, right before my exam, to go have a child. Oh, yeah. So That's right. I forgot. That's that's how that went. Yeah, and I had to take the exam 
I think a couple months after Willow was born. So that was fun. I remember Willow kicking your laptop while we were studying French together. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, that grad but, yeah, student we, life we learning learned for to the translate. exam. Yeah, we learned to read and translate. And as people who speak, well, speak and read ancient languages, translating things that we don't speak super well was kind of our speciality. And we wanted to talk today about that because translating and speaking are two very different exercises. Yep. Uh, there is spoken translation. You know, there are translators at the UN or any kind of major meeting, but translating something that you're not translating for the purpose of necessarily speaking, if you're translating it to create a written copy that other people can read and benefit from, it's a very different exercise. And when it comes to ancient languages, it takes a very unique form because it is one of the major outputs of learning Latin and ancient Greek. Yeah, it's the kind of the, the major benefit you get by default since you can't go speak to Romans or Greeks. So all we can do is translate. So what's kind of nice about it is it does make you extremely aware of language and how it works. It makes you very aware of everything that you are saying, which this is something that I have noticed over the years <laughs> of doing this, is being very aware of just syntax, being very analytical of syntax and usage and rhetoric, because that is kind of the main thing you focus on as a learner of, of yeah, I guess a, a learner of these undead languages. <laughs> Yes, it's something my partner will tease me about when I say something wrong. He'll be like, you're super good at syntax. How did you mess that up? I'm like, uh-huh. Because we're still yes, just mere I, mortals. Uh, we are still humans. We still say silly things and we still words wrong sometimes. <laughs> Somehow, you know, sometimes your, your words turn into word salad when you're tired. Yes. But still we are able to think in a unique and unusual way about the way that we craft our sentences and the way that we create meaning with words so we wanted to talk about we've got you know the there's the difference between learning modern languages um and learning ancient languages and what it does for you and in this case what does it mean to be a translator of an ancient language Specifically, what are your goals when you translate an ancient language and create a translation? Mm -hmm. And what are the different ways you can do it or the different purposes for which you can create that translation? Yeah, I've done a fair amount of what I just call personal translations that are there for my own understanding. And what's kind of interesting about doing that is... You can really you can play around with all the different shades of meaning you can experiment with trying to figure out what is going on in context and that can be a very interesting exercise because we don't always know you know all of the shades or the nuances that are at work in you know certain texts so that's kind of that's something that has always been fun for me to do in translating and in this regard i actually had an interesting conversation with my greek students recently about this because two of my greek students had a debate over how to translate a specific sentence that we were going over for class 
And one of them had selected one translation and the other had selected another and they were quite passionate about the respective translations they had chosen and asked which one, they asked me which one of them was right. And as I looked at their two translations, I had to tell them, you're both right. And this is why I said, one of you has chosen the translation that sticks most faithfully to the ancient text. The phrasing is a little strange for an idiomatic speaker of English, Mm -hmm. but you're not wrong. The phrasing you've chosen accurately represents what is in this ancient Greek sentence, whereas the other one has chosen a translation that is also correct, but is more idiomatic, not quite as laser focused on exactly what's going on in the not as clunky. And the truth is, I said, one of you has chosen to translate for the layman. If you were creating a translation of, say, Homer for the average person who doesn't know ancient Greek and who isn't attached to these kinds of translations and the syntax of the Greek, gets to enjoy the Greek now, created in a way that is relatable and easy for a person who naturally speaks English. The mm-hmm. other one has chosen the path of the academic and will get to fight epic battles with other academics <laughs> about whether she has faithfully represented the ancient Greek. So those are kind of the two purposes, broadly speaking, mm-hmm. painting with a broad brush. Those are the two main or perhaps biggest areas or reasons for translating an ancient text is either for the academic world, where you are sticking as faithfully as you can to the Greek, trying to create a representation in English that's as close as it can be to how it was produced in the Greek, or trying to bring that text into the world of those who do not speak the language so that they can still enjoy the beauty of this work of artistic literature. And in the former category, there is also there is in the the academic, yeah, in the academic category, there is a lot of back and forth that you can see that happens over the years with, you know, for example, with an author like Plato, who is extremely complicated even in his own language and even native Greek speakers writing comments in the manuscripts were wondering what on earth he meant by certain <laughs> things. And so there's, you know, that kind of delightful spindle of necessity. Forth. Yeah, nobody knows. Like, what does that mean? <laughs> Who knows? But, you know, and all the back and forth that you can have in, on the academic level about, you know, what does this mean? What are, you know, what is the most accurate way to translate that? But then, you know, it's sort of the latter category that's not as important because nobody wants to read something that is really clunky and difficult to understand. And that so- said, the translations that stick faithfully to the ancient Greek can be a stepping stone to the idiomatic one. So once yeah. you understand, or at least you have tried to understand what the Greek or Latin is saying in its own language, then you can create an idiomatic translation that represents for the person who does not speak those languages as best as possible what was going on in them like maintain the spirit of it the artisticness of it that's probably not a word but we're building new words here artistry artistry there you go (laughs) melted brain yeah i have uh you know it's 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 one of the things the biggest probably pitfalls of translation is that when you pick up a translation of anything, you are going to be kind of limited to the meaning that has been selected by the translator. And there can be 
lots of different possibilities in the original and they can only really get one or two of those ideas across which is why it can sometimes be helpful to read multiple translations of things if you're really dedicated and just you know see how all the different kind different shades of meaning can come out in different ways in this regard though we 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 consider this to be one of the reasons that these languages are very beneficial for someone to read because it teaches you it teaches you the learner of the language a valuable lesson about how a language can never truly be represented in an, another language it's yeah. not a hundred percent possible ever and that's a valuable thing for anyone to learn for children for adults for anyone learning a language to think about the fact that different languages express ideas differently, right down to there are concepts in languages that don't exist in other ones. Some of the good examples of this are if you learn a Nordic or Scandinavian language, many of them will have a zillion different words for snow, different kinds of snow, because they're very snowy up there. And there's different <laughs> words for different kinds of fog, different words in Norway. There are multiple words for different kinds of rivers. And we don't have those in other countries that don't have as much snow or as many rivers or as or don't get fog very often. Or it can you be create... very awkward to explain yeah. all these differences without using many, many, many words to do it. A paraphrasis, <laughs> using multiple words to surround a single concept. So there's that. Then there's also expressions that don't exist in another language. Remember, there are expressions in ancient Greek that we stare at and just have no idea what that means mm -hmm. and can't even begin to render it in a translation because it just the concept does not exist in English and because we don't have any live speakers of that language we can't ask them so what does this mean yeah like how bad of an insult is this really <laughs> I've had that question a lot oh yeah for sure so there's that I've experienced that as a bilingual person there are expressions in Danish that don't translate well to English. Some of them just sound funny. Some of them, there's no English equivalent for the word at all. My mom would sometimes speak, she would sometimes directly translate an expression from, from Danish into English without thinking about it after she'd been talking to her parents on the phone. And I remember she would do things like she would put me to bed and say, can you sleep well? And I'd be like, um, mom? And I knew what it meant because I spoke Danish too, but nobody says that in English. You say sleep tight or sweet dreams, but mm -hmm. in Danish you say, can you sleep well? Is but in English question? that sounds really, it sounds really strange, but in Danish that's just wishing someone a good night. Yeah, That's a normal way to wish someone a good night. So it's very interesting how different languages think differently about things. The other example I have, and perhaps you can think of some in ancient Greek and Latin is Danish prepositions work differently. Like mm -hmm. when I would talk, when I would speak in Danish, I would translate prepositions from English since I had never lived in Denmark and didn't have that habit of using prepositions the way they did. So I remember one time telling my grandpa that I was riding on the bus somewhere and my grandpa started laughing and he was like, oh, you better be holding on really tight. That sounds dangerous. Because <laughs> in Danish, you ride in the bus. And oh. so if you say, I rode on the bus, it sounds like you were sitting on top. And he would always tease me and be like, you really shouldn't do that. It's not safe. So yeah, when you say that, that makes me think, think it makes, yeah, it makes me think about um, 
prepositions that express a static, like, you know, you are on, a, you are at a certain point and you are not moving, but then there are other prepositions Ooh. that imply motion towards something, like in Latin, yeah. you know, ad plus the accusative, that sort of motion towards something. That's a or kind the of... good, yeah, in, the, right? The yeah. Latin preposition in, when you use accusative, it means you're going into something. Mm -hmm. So if you going say in, in domum, that means you're going into the house. Mm -hmm. But if you say in domo, it means you are already in the house and you are staying in one place. So the complexities of just things Which that they can do express, that in two words, yeah. whereas it takes us many words to explain yeah. exactly I'm in what the those house sitting are. still yeah versus I am going into the house it's really cool and it's fascinating but that's where we get to one of our favorite terms I've always enjoyed this one there's something when when students are new to Latin they often do something we call translationese <laughs> uh yeah translationese is it's a very useful tool and it's also a little bit of a wearying one because <laughs> you it is a very good tool for reinforcing grammatical concepts and making sure that the students really understand what's going on in the syntax of the original language and at the same time there there that you also can run into the problem where they will translate something into translationese and then you have to sit there and think okay did what they say still make sense or did they just sort of translate each word in order and then didn't actually create a unit? Yeah, that's and and you have to look out for the difference between translationese and students not understanding because yeah. there's also the scenario I see with some students of Latin, and that's one thing that teaching the <clears throat> comprehensible input style can help you to avoid. Students will translate Latin sentences. They'll just literally take each vocabulary word and translate it. So yeah. if you say, I'm, I can't even think of an example at present, but they'll they'll just take the three words and create word salad. Which means you end say, up with well, like words in places that they shouldn't be in an English sentence. Yeah. And, it, and then they don't understand why they're not right. And that's because they haven't understood. Usually it's because they haven't understood the endings and they haven't thought of the latin as a unit of meaning they've just thought of it as a puzzle yeah since but the verb sentence in, sorry go ahead yeah. translationese can be just something super awkward like we were saying you know you might you might translate in domo as in the house and then not understand that it means static or you might understand that it means static and use a zillion words to express that meaning mm -hmm. Uh, whereas in English, there are ways to express that you are somewhere and sitting there and you are in there statically without too many words, but then it diverts itself or diverges from the exact sort of clunky way you might express it from the Latin to turn it into English. Yeah, and it's I've kind of I've noticed this problem with just where the verb placement is. And it's it, it can be kind of difficult to not sound like you're speaking like Yoda, where you stick the verb <laughs> at the very end because Romans like to put the verb at yeah, the end. Yeah, they like putting yes. the verb at the end, and then you know the, like where the all the different prepositional phrases or the adverbial phrases are, and it can just be kind of a mess sometimes. Yep. So if you had the girl walked with the dog was walking with the dog, then you can say puella cum cane 
ambulabat. And then if somebody translates, the girl with the dog was walking, that's basically translationese. You've done it one word at a time, um, but it's pretty awkward in English. It's awkward, but it's still accurate. Yep. But we don't do it that way in English. And sometimes if you translate that way, the English is more or less accurate, but not good English at all. Which I think it is, there is some value in having students you know like i've i've been trying to do this where i have have them translate sentences and then i will ask them specifically for the translation ease version first and then i will ask them any clarifying questions about the syntax or the grammar and then i'll ask them okay so if we were to make this into a nice english sentence what would that look like and then i'll ask them to explain what they did differently which has been helpful, just having that process and then you making sure that the translation ease is there to just make sure that they understand what's going on. So if they have, if they come across a phrase that is, you know, in domum, I will ask them in the sort of translation ease to explain in domum, I am going into the house, just for a random example, um, you know, and explain that motion towards idea. But in the final product, in the nice English sentence, we won't say that at all. We'll try to, you know, maybe into the house, like I'm going into the house can kind of get you there. Um, but yeah, these are some of the, like there, it, it has some value, but you know, we do also want to make sure that we are enforcing good, the good target language usage as well. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And that's where, again, you know, we're, with with students you kind of have to think about what they want to get out of it but mm -hmm. taking those two steps from the translation ease to the idiomatic english the nice comfortable english that sounds like english and not like it was pieced together like an awkward puzzle is a good exercise for students in multiple regards we talked i think in our first episode even or the second if I, I don't recall about we talked in an early episode about how learning ancient languages gives you a chance to think about a culture and the differences mm -hmm. from one culture to the other in a safe space of there's no Romans who are going to crawl out of the grave and tell you you're wrong about their culture. And it's sort of a comfortable way to explore another culture and just do the mental exercise of thinking about how different one culture is from another, right down to the question of Cultures think about colors differently. Like mm -hmm. we have arguments about the wine dark sea. What does that mean? What yep. color was the sea to them? Um, how do they express color? You know, not every culture has the same words for the same varieties of colors that we all see. And just thinking about something so simple as how to talk about colors with people and realizing that one culture says it differently from another is such a valuable exercise for for developing minds it to is. develop humility and consideration for other people's thought process and where other people come from and recognizing mm -hmm. that because you just because you don't understand the way they express their ideas doesn't mean that they're not equally as meaningful and clever and interesting and worthy of consideration as yours yeah and i, I also have enjoyed um uh... The occasional time when we get to discuss the sort of internal logic of a language and kind of related to that and the way they yes. might think and the way 
you can see words developing like when you're explaining the semantic range of a word and how they might have gotten from point a to point b like the verb gero in latin is a very very ambiguous kind of verb it can mean many many different things so we we're talking about how it goes from its sort of fundamental you know to to carry something out to do something to completion to how they ended up with you know terms like the race gestae the things that have been accomplished and all the different meanings that are attached to that and how that develops over time is really fascinating and, and isn't it also tolo tolo tolera that can mean to raise something up or to mm -hmm. destroy it and the fact that one word means both of those things is just fascinating Wild. to ask yourself what what kind of impact did that what have happened to have what kind happen? of impact did that have on on the way that they thought about the word and the way that they used it and how were the times that they, they intentionally the exploited those double meanings as well and the kinds of kind of brilliant insight you can get into those times when they intentionally use those double meanings and yeah and i'm sure it was made it, it could be a joke it could be a you know subtlety and again something that's impossible to get fully across in english which is why i like when i have made personal translations of things sometimes i will have extensive footnotes yeah, where i try to explain some of these things when i come across them i'm they're still traumatized by footnotes from the <laughs> dissertation <laughs> i'm thinking about our shared committee member who would trawl through the footnotes with a fine-toothed comb <laughs> which was both terrifying and oddly delightful. Oh yeah, I, I love him. He's great. But footnotes, uh, the footnotes on translations. If you have ever read a translation and ignored them, you are Don't. missing a treasure trove. It's a treasure trove and it's so fun. I honestly, I do actually, world, I, I judge yeah. translations a little bit nowadays on, I mean, this is this is probably because I am coming from one side of the issue obviously but i i want footnotes and, mm -hmm. and and end notes and the more they have the more i tend to value that translation and here i would argue too that when you're creating a translation for the layman the footnote should still be there in mm -hmm. fact if anything they're even more important because a well-written footnote that's welcoming a person who doesn't speak that language to think about the language that lies behind what they're reading can be so fun for the reader. And so I understand why, you know, publishers might not want to have, you know, an extensively footnoted translation because it just looks messy. It looks, you know, it takes up a lot of space. You know. Superscript numbers. Yeah, I know. Like, but I, I think that is actually a very valuable thing to look for translations that have footnotes and explanations of things. Because I, I don't like reading a translation where the page is just clean. No, it just it makes me feel like I'm missing something. <laughs> yes. But this is what we're basically saying here. As we talk about all these things that we love and we're excited about, that not everyone has been welcomed into this world. And mm. not everyone spends their time doing this. And that's fine. But we're here to tell you that allowing a child, a student, yourself, to study a language like this gives you these kinds of insights just 
it's a way to think about the depth of the human mind and the things mm -hmm. that it produces. And each culture, each language, even each individual person producing a text makes these choices and thinks about these things in their own language without even being super conscious of it. Mm -hmm. And so translating is a great responsibility and a gift and a privilege. It's such a cool thing to do. It is. And you know, as a translator, that you will never capture all the meaning. Mm -hmm. But you as a translator create your own meaning through your translation. You carry as much of the meaning as you can, and you bring your own meaning to the text as you recreate it in a new language. And it's so cool. And letting a student create their own translation, like Annie creating her personal translations at home, letting a student create their own translation is allowing them to experience that and they learn so much from it. Yeah, even definitely. if it's a little translation, even if it's a baby translation that doesn't have a million footnotes, you, it's such a gift and it's such an experience. It is. And I, I enjoy having that facility with, with language and with understanding. And, and it's something that you take into reading lots of other things. You know, for example, right now, I am some of my friends and I are reading Dostoevsky's uh, novel, The Idiot, which has been interesting because I actually took some time to research the different translations. I don't know Russian. I can't read Russian, but... I'm still able to make intelligent, informed decisions about the translations, and I can understand what different translators are bringing to the text that will help me you know, decide what kind of experience I want to have. And that's actually an incredibly useful skill that you can take into reading anything. Oh, yeah. And then you can enjoy the footnotes more on your own. Mm -hmm. I think I read Crime and Punishment with a wonderful set of footnotes that enriched the text a great deal for me. Yeah. I yeah, also this... wish I could read Russian. Yeah, that would be nice because I I've been a, I've been scared of Russian literature for a long time. And that's <laughs> uh... nothing to fear. But I yeah, every time I read a text that I know is translated, it's running through my mind somewhere in the back that I'm thinking about. Sometimes I'll go look up a passage from a book that I'm reading that's a translation to see if I can just nose out a little bit of the meaning, even mm -hmm. if I don't know the language, just mm -hmm. as a little exercise. Yeah, I've done that a but lot. All this, all this to say as well, one of, one of the important points to think about with a translation, if you've ever looked up, let's say you're looking to read Homer's Iliad, there are a lot of translations of Homer's Iliad. Mm -hmm. Why? We can tell you some of that. There's the really old versions. I still remember, what is it, Rutherford that we sometimes read with the myth students where uh, yeah. what, plural, the plural of cows was beeves. Oh, that one yeah. threw me a loop. <laughs> yeah, the archaic English. Yeah, I, I, I do enjoy the archaic ones just because they're so delightfully strange. <laughs> and yeah, you know, I couldn't. Fraught with couldn't, their own no. issues, but... I, I do enjoy them, but I don't enjoy using them for undergraduates because it oh, confuses no. them so very much. Yeah, there's and too much to explain. Herein lies the, when you say, oh, there are translators of classics, we've already translated the Iliad and the Odyssey. What gives? Well, we've talked a little bit about it. There's different reasons to translate it and different audiences to translate for, but that's not all there is to this picture. I mean, language is constantly changing. It is constantly morphing and evolving and usage changes. 
conventions change and so you there's always a need for people translating things updating translations and sometimes especially with classical literature we just learn more we can add more to our understanding of ancient texts if we discover some additional papyrus fragments or extra manuscripts occasionally or we'll have some other kind of like material research that helps add some depth to what we know and that actually the manuscripts right now well oh gosh no that would be like four episodes all on its own yep um all that to say is that our our knowledge is constantly changing and hopefully growing as we we learn more we think more we research more and understand all these things more so there do have to be kind of continual translations being done and yep, so that is like a valuable give, thing we like to give this as an example to some of the young students uh give them a passage of beowulf and in its original and have them look at it and ask them what language it is and we get all sorts of answers all sorts of languages are guessed and then blow their minds when we tell them that it's english and they're like what but what that happened in itself what is this what the heck and then talk to them about how english was influenced by so many different languages by mm. danish french german latin all sorts of languages had an impact on english mm. as it grew into what it is today glorious and franken language franken language and <laughs> what is the in internet joke is that it's the language that mugs other languages and rifles through their pockets for spare vocabulary yep but English is a crazy weird language, but it's not just that. I, I talk to my students about what I, this is not even a technical term at all, but I made it up. I call it linguistic weirding. <laughs> Lang languages change over time. And so if you ask yourself, why, why are some words weirder than other words? Like in Latin, tolo, tolera, sustuli, sublatus. Mm -hmm. What the heck? Those are all the same word, just different forms of it. Mm -hmm. But the same is true in English. I am, you are. He, she, it is. Those are all the same word, but in different forms. Am, are, is. They're all the same word. But if you say, I run, you run, he, she, it runs, they're mostly the same. They're the same word. They don't change as much. Mm -hmm. Why is the word for I am so different? And that's what I call linguistic weirding. The more a word is used, the, the weirder, weirder it gets. gets. Yeah. And that's true in English. It's constantly changing. It's constantly growing. And I love to tell the students, you are a part of linguistic weirding. You are actively weirding your language every day as you use it. It is your heritage. It is your responsibility and your duty to make your language weirder. Especially as the internet looms so large oh over our general usage and the absolutely bizarre things that we say because... You know, one time somebody misspelled something on Twitter and then we never let it go. You know, so oh many gosh. things like that. It's yes, just, it's, yeah. it's, it, it gets adopted and new words are added to the vocabulary and the dictionary regularly. And that's what's interesting with Latin is it's not really changing anymore. You've got what I call a mummified language. It's frozen in stone and you get to study it. And so when we create new translations of Latin text, English is changing, and we want to continue to make people able to read Boethius and the Aeneid, but 
we need to update it because our language changed. Latin didn't change, but our language changed. Yeah, just, let's just hope there isn't, I don't know, I, I'm not really looking forward to internet slang translations of any of these things. Isn't there already like a, a slang version of some of the Roman comedies out there? I believe, yeah, I, I believe there is. There's there's all kinds of, which are hilarious. Indeed. But yeah, so that is, I guess that's probably about all the time we have for today. But yeah, those are some general thoughts. Uh, and we would welcome questions on translations if anyone yes. wants to know what translation to read or what you should have on hand if you want to read Homer or the Aeneid. We have a lot of thoughts. A lot of thoughts. I've read a lot of different translations of lots of different things. Very much so. And I hear debates about translations all the time Mm -hmm. at my work. It's good fun to be a part of a community that has such lively feelings and thoughts about that. Yes, definitely. But yes, those are some of the value, valuable elements of translation. And something I think that was fairly important for us to discuss somewhat early into this podcasting project, since translation is one of the major projects of classicists and learning, you know, learning Latin and Greek. And even if you're just a person just learning it for fun, you're still going to be mostly translating it. So, yep, I like to encourage my students too, and perhaps you if you were a teacher a home homeschool or public or any other kind of school i like to encourage my students to tell them you are a translator whether or not your translation ever reaches other eyes you are a translator you are a part of this this heritage this responsibility this experience mm-hmm. and it's it's an exciting thing and a lot of students are very enthusiastic about that they like to feel that that they are a part of this history and it's cool anyone who reads these texts even if you just translate it in your own head you are a translator of this text you are a creator of meaning so well maybe we'll have a part two three four etc of the philosophy of translation because it's something we have a wealth of thoughts on Yes, yeah, so no, these kinds of episodes could easily go for two hours if we didn't put some pretty strict limits on ourselves. Yes, I hope maybe in the future we can do a translating Greek, translating Latin, translating yes. Greek poetry, well, that'd be translating great. Latin prose, yes, all sorts of good stuff, and talk about how translating each author is its own adventure. Oh yeah, definitely. That would be great. Well, thank you for being along for this ride. Thank you for listening. Enormous nerdiness. Well, hopefully it inspires you a little bit on your journey wherever you are. And we will see you next time. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please be sure to subscribe for future episodes. For more information, you can visit our website, museoneducation.com. That's spelled M-U-S-E-I-O-N, education.com. Also linked in the show notes. We wish you a happy language learning journey.